Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Dose Nation. Uh, Saturday, February 23rd, 2013. I'm your host, Jake. Thanks for joining us. And, of course, uh, with me, as always, is co-host of the Dose Nation podcast and founder of Dose Nation, James Kent. James, how are you? I'm doing great today. Should be a good interview? Yeah, it's going to be great. Yeah, so let's, right off the bat, let's uh, introduce our guest today. The Reverend uh, Dr. Nicholas Buxton was born in Singapore and grew up in London. He is currently a priest in the Church of England and was featured in the BBC documentary The Monastery. He is also the author of Tantalus and the Pelican, which can be found on Amazon. Uh, That's where I got my copy, so go ahead and and get your copy as well. And also The Wilderness uh, Within, which is due to come out in 2013. Father Nicholas, welcome to the program. Good evening. It's uh, great to have you with us. And uh, before we we, uh, talk about monastic spirituality today... Can, can we find out where Father Nicholas is calling from? Uh, yeah, well, uh, you, 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 uh, where, where, where are you calling from? I'm, I'm in Newcastle in England. So, and uh, I, 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 I didn't include this in the introduction, but, but, but you, are, uh, you do serve a church up there, if I remember Yes, correctly. I have a parish in the city center. So, the first question that I want to ask right off the bat is, how, mm-hmm. how did you come to write a book about monastic spirituality? What... Um, made you interested, you know, uh, what what made you go from being like everybody else to <laughs> having, the, no, no, to having this pro- profound yeah. interest in spirituality and sure. monasticism and so on? Um, I just fell into it, really. Uh, the first time I stayed in a monastery, I was just traveling. Um, I was in my late 20s, and I ended up visiting a Buddhist monastery in New Zealand um, with some friends, and the abbot there um it, it kind of transpired that I was interested in meditation and things like that. And so the abbot there said, well, why don't you come and stay for a couple of days? Um, which I did, but I ended up staying for six months in the end. And um, I just got into the whole, uh, the whole way of the, the religious life and the discipline and the routine and the spirituality. And uh, from then on, I just got really interested in the whole sort of area. But previous to that, you didn't really have any religious leanings one way or the other? No, not really. I kind of, I kind of dropped out after leaving school, and I, wasn't, uh, I didn't grow up as a churchgoer particularly, and I, wasn't, uh, I, I wouldn't have called myself a Christian, certainly not, and I wasn't, uh, wasn't a believer as such. But I was always interested in philosophical questions, always interested in different traditions, and I had a... Um, an interest since a teenager in Buddhism and in the philosophy and in the um, ideas of meditation and that sort of thing. And I was pursuing those interests when I kind of fell into the, um, you know, actually staying in monasteries and going into it more deeply. So you were just sort of picking and choosing. You were experimenting. I was picking and choosing, but I was was traveling around, I mean, both physically and, and metaphorically. So I was on a bit of a journey and I was just, um, kind of looking into things as I found them. And then I just started going deeper into, into the things that, that really attracted me. And it was, it was the, the discipline and the meditation and, and that kind of total immersion in the spiritual life that drew me in. How old were you when you decided that, that, that that's what you were – I was in my late 20s. To? I was um, – Late 20s. Yeah, I was about 27 when I made a kind of decision to – to pursue that um, that spiritual calling, if you like. What was her name? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. It was on the banks of the River Ganges, so it was Mother Ganga, if you like. Oh, excellent! <laughs> yeah, and and I had read that, and you talked about having this kind of very profound experience on the on the banks of the river. Could you tell us a little about that? Yeah, I just suddenly realized that that I'd found what I wanted to do uh, in and with my life, which was, you know, as I was saying, to pursue this kind of spiritual journey, as it were. Um, Previous to that, immediately previous to that, I'd been um, living a fair, you know, I'd been kind of wasting my life away mainly through through drink. I, you know, I I had a a drink problem, and I was kind of running away from that. And I, I quit drinking and I got into meditation and, and at that time yoga and realized that I'd found something that I, I really wanted and that I really wanted to do in life rather than just kind of, you know, wasting it away. So how old were you when you, how old were you when you started drinking? 
oh, I would have been in my, you know, like 13, 14. And is that, that common where you grew up? That was in, in England, yeah. I mean, I was still at school then, obviously. I mean, that's not when I, I wasn't an alcoholic since, since 14, but, um, I certainly was, you know, getting drunk as a teenager and then through my twenties, you know, it just kind of got progressively worse. And what, and what sort of, what sort of an alcoholic were you? Were you like a go out and party alcoholic or were you a sit alone and, and drink alcoholic? Yeah, both. Both. Oh, really? There's a, there's a fine line, isn't there, between being a you know a heavy social drinker and being a problem drinker. Right. And it's, it's when you cross that line, and I think you cross that line when you start to when you start to lie about your behaviour, when you start to do things in secret, when you you know start to drink behind your friend's back, even when you're kind of out, you know. Um, and when you cross that line, when the first thing you think about when you get up in the morning is you know having a drink, I think that's when you cross the line. And you were you had enough self awareness to know that you you had a you had a problem. Yeah, I mean, I was I was just falling into that kind of you know that abyss, but I had that self awareness still at that time to think, okay, that this isn't good, this isn't right, this isn't going in a good direction, and I need to you know I need to get out now if I can. And what I found was I couldn't I couldn't get out of it as long as I remained in my kind of social networks which was you know a bunch of other guys who used to drink a lot so i thought right i've just got to get away from it all and and do something else so off i went on on some travels um and that's when i also you know went on the kind of spiritual travels as well and you did you stop drinking when you were traveling or did, was it a slower process no i stopped drinking straight away i went to india which is not a drinking culture and almost immediately got into um, going to kind of yoga classes and meditation. And as, as I said a moment ago, that's when I kind of found something that I wanted to do more than get drunk. So I made a decision then. Uh, initially, the decision had been simply to stop, you know, to just clean up for a bit. Um, I had no kind of long-term plan. But then when I realized that I actually liked what I was doing and I, I felt it had a purpose, I then decided to stop drinking permanently and that I would, from that moment on, pursue this kind of new direction in life. And you've stuck with it. And I've stuck with it. And that was when I was 27. I'm now, and how old, are, how old are you today? I'm, for, I'm 47 this year, so it's coming up for 20 years. 20 years. Wow, good job. Great. Fantastic. <laughs> there we go. So you went to India. You went to yeah. uh, New Zealand. Um, yeah. And you stayed there. What was your experience uh, overall? Because I know that there were, you know, as I was reading Tantalus and the Pelican, you talked about mm -hmm. while you were in, you were in New Zealand, you had a goat. Um, and I think, yeah, well, that was in the in the community. Yeah, yeah they had I think the name there, was yeah. P I Pi um, or uh, I, 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 P P. They call it P. It's a Thai word. P. Yeah. Um, P. And you know, this goat was kind of. Uh, a pillar of the community in some in, in in some strange way, and you would try to get you know, and every time you tried to get rid of this goat, the oh, goat would goat, come back. Man, I tell you, the the monks um, who are all from Thailand, and they apart from the abbot who was quite, uh, I mean, the abbot was quite westernized. In fact, he'd he'd uh, before he became a monk, he'd worked as a barman at the Whiskey Go Go in um, in Los Angeles, and he he would tell me all these stories about you know, kind of the stars that he met and. Um, them doing drugs in the toilet and whatever, and then he and then he became a, a a monk when he went back home. So he was quite he was quite savvy, but the rest of the the rest of the monks there had had never really travelled before, and they didn't really kind of you know know much about life in you know outside of Thailand. And um, one of them caught this this feral goat. Um, I don't know how the hell he did it because you know goats are not easy to catch, but he caught this animal. And he came back to the the kind of you know the compound as it were, and all his robes were kind of torn because he'd been chasing this goat through the bushes and stuff. And they you know it was just a baby, and they kind of adopted it as a pet. Um, and they thought, oh, you know, nice cute little pet. But of course, as it grew up, it started to eat all the plants that we were trying to plant. So they were trying to grow some fruit trees, it ate the fruit trees, and it just became a total pest. And then they decided that you know this cute little baby goat that was now growing up to be a you know kind of obnoxious teenager goat that they should get rid of it so they they tried to take it away and abandon it but by this time of course it was you know it was domesticated and and it liked to hang around with them so it kept coming back 
And um, <laughs> so it was like a pet. Yeah, they, yeah the pet, pet goat. <laughs> <laughs> so, and there was another instance, uh, the, the, and this is when you had left the monastery, when there was a, I, I think it was, you see, it was a white uh, European monk or something who came to the monastery and wanted to get rid of the goat, or there was some problem oh, with yeah. it. Yeah, this yeah. Was, um, yeah, then they, they decided they, they, they kind of hatched a plan, you know, because every time we took the goat for a walk, as it were, you know, it would just, it would just kind of follow us back. Um, and, then, and then one day they said, right, um, you, i.e. I, me, talking to me, you need to, you know, take the goat in the car or the, the van that we had um, to this spot. And he pointed to this spot on the map that was like 100 miles away. And he said, you've got to take the goat here and leave it and then come back. And I, I just looked at the map and he was pointing to like a nature reserve. And, and I said, well, no, you can't do that because that's protected area and goats are, you know, feral goats, they're a pest. They eat all the, you know, native plants, whatever. And in any case, you can't, you can't do this. You know, you've domesticated this animal. You've made it your pet and now you're wanting to, you know, throw it away. So, so I kind of, I refused, uh, to do that. Um, and I got, I got some pretty, I got some pretty bad looks from from some of the folk there, but anyway, that so was. So <laughs> you, you were you were the only in a in a community of monks. You were the only person standing up for the rights of the goat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ironic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, very noble, but very ironic as well. <laughs> you know, but but I think that 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 brings up an interesting point. You know, somebody takes mm-hmm. on this 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 responsibility. Yeah, uh, and then when it no longer serves the purpose of being cute it, it, or fun, exactly. they want to throw it away. Exactly. But you can't just throw. I mean, you can't just you do, can't that. do that. I mean, it's you know, uh, what if what, what if that was a person? You know, I mean, you can't exactly. throw away a person. You know, yeah, you can't do that. You know, they raised this, they caught this animal as a baby, and then raised it, and then they, <laughs> and then they decided they didn't want it anymore. So, you know, but you can't do that. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's 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 just. Uh, it's not something, it's not something that you can do but you, now how did you how did you end up going from you know New Zealand and India mm-hmm. and then getting you know and then you went back to England after yeah. uh, uh you yeah. know af- after a period and then you got an email from the BBC about Oh well that was some years later. Okay. So um, I mean this this episode the the kind of travel episode that was about mm-hmm. a period of about 2 years in the mid 90s um and then I came back to the UK and I was like okay what am I going to do now? Um, somehow I wanted to carry on with that, that sort of journey I'd begun, that spiritual, that spiritual journey and that kind of, um, you know, I wanted it to be more than just a, a hobby, you know, I wanted it to be my way of life, but I couldn't really figure out how to do that. So, um, after, after a little while, I started going to church. Um, it was difficult at first, but I kind of stuck at it. And then I, and then I thought, well, I, I should go and, and study because I never went to university when I left school. I just kind of dropped out. Um, so when and, you when you came back to the UK, were you uh-huh. back with your previous group of friends, or did you move? No, I, I I never I never got in touch with my old friends again. Oh, I um, see. I, I I knew that if I went back to that world, it would it wouldn't be good for me. So I just kind of started over. It was it was as if my old you know the old person I had been was dead, and I started a new life. Literally, I mean, it sounds dramatic, but that's. No, that's, I yeah, I understand. I understand. That's you know, that's really how it was. It was. It's like there's been two parts. You know, there was part one, and then there was part two. Completely different identity. And since you quit drinking, you've been completely sober. You haven't experimented. Yeah. Okay. yeah. No, I I quit drinking. I quit smoking. I mean, I used to, I used to do do drugs a bit as well. I just I quit everything. So let's and and, and then I went and then I went to university. You see, and it was it was while I was at university that the um. The, the monastery thing came along. Yeah, and I and I want to talk about this because I, um, mm-hmm. you know, I I, I um, it, it it actually wasn't until I read your book and until mm-hmm. I saw the monastery that I had any you know kind of um, interest in mm-hmm. in in monastic life at all because I had thought you know uh, most people's visions of monks are kind of these guys in the Middle Ages who walk around and whip themselves and don't talk. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's all right. really serious and they're really right. holy and yeah, yeah. And they're not all those stereotypes just go up in smoke when you actually spend some time with these guys. Right, and you know, even just uh, watching watching the monastery and uh, and I actually bought Abbot Christopher Jameson's book. Uh, oh yeah, you know as well. Just to, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I I haven't read it all yet, but you know it's. Hey. It, 
Can you explain what the monastery is for people who aren't familiar with it? Um, the I'll, TV yeah, program? <clears throat> yes. Yes. Yeah, do you want me to explain that? Yes, please. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Okay, uh, it was it was around about um, 2004, 2005. The BBC decided to make a documentary about monasticism, um, but they, they wanted to do that, as is the, the kind of way of these things these days. They wanted to do that through uh, a sort of, you know, a real-life experience of of ordinary members of the public. And that was their way of kind of, you know, getting into it and telling the story. So they selected five men to go and spend a period of six weeks living in a Benedictine monastery. And they followed, um, you know, the kind of progress of these five men. And I was one of them. Now, how did you get selected for that process? How did you event? I mean, how did you get, get, get involved in that? Because in the beginning, they said there were thousands of people that they surveyed to do this. Um, they they uh, did well. I don't know if it was thousands, but they hundreds, did yeah. uh, have a lot of inquiries. Yeah, but they didn't they didn't kind of advertise openly. It wasn't like um, a kind of reality show where there's there's prize money and that sort of thing. So they didn't they didn't advertise openly, but they did have a lot of interest. And um, I mean, I heard about it through an email that was forwarded by a friend who'd got it from another friend, you know, and they, and it just said kind of you know saw this and thought of you, and and then I kind of scrolled down and I I saw what they were. You know, they were looking for people to spend some time in a monastery. I just responded straight away because I thought, yes, that's me. I, you know, I don't, I want to do that. Um, and, you know, then they went through a kind of process of, of interviews and, and that sort of thing. And they, I think they wanted to select a range of, of people who would be quite different from each other. And they certainly, uh, they certainly achieved that. What were uh, you studying? Uh, what were you studying at the university? Uh, at that time, I just started my PhD, which was in, uh, and my topic was uh, in Buddhist philosophy. All right. So we have a lot of Buddhist experts on this show, apparently. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, we do. Yeah, our our our, our guest a few weeks ago also has a PhD in Buddhist. Uh, All right. Yeah. So yeah. so a lot of people are, yeah. are interested in Buddhism. Um, oh, indeed. Yeah. Because it, it it presents itself as a very altruistic philosophy, I think. Um, yeah, and also it presents itself, or at least in the West, it presents itself as a very rational philosophy that is consistent with a you know a modern kind of scientific worldview, uh, devoid of of supernatural elements. But I think that's a slightly um, Westernized you know version of Buddhism. I mean, if you go to a, a Buddhist country, you'll you'll find people you know kind of engaged in all sorts of practices and beliefs that you don't read about in in books by western scholars but nevertheless it has that philosophical content which i think is is of great interest to people i think one of the other things about buddhism is that it's it's one of the only modern religions that teaches practitioners self-control over their own mind i mean it's very focused on teaching the practice of controlling your own thoughts and controlling indeed Indeed. i mean i i wouldn't i wouldn't agree that it's the only well, it's, it's, I think it's, it's one of the, the most popular. Right, it's yes. certainly very explicit in Buddhist teaching that that is, you know, that is very much to the forefront. But I, I would maintain that you can find um, similar teachings in other traditions. They're just not as as um, explicit, and and that's why um, you know I've explored things like the the tradition of the Desert Fathers uh, in the early Christian tradition, where you do get you do get a lot of that. Um, you know, kind of, if you like, psycho-spiritual teaching, but it's just not kind of overt in the in the mainstream tradition. But it is it is definitely there. So, what is the Desert Fathers? Can you please? Well, the Desert Fathers were the the early Christian, the first Christian kind of monks um, who went out into the deserts of Egypt um, from about the the second through the fourth centuries and kind of lived. Um, lived in caves and small communities, and what what we have today is collections of their sayings and teachings. I mean, they're quite sort of bitty, but in those in those sayings and teachings, you get you get almost a you know these kind of Zen like epigrams, and you also get some more extended treatises about the the interior life and the workings of the mind, which although it's it's couched in language and and sort of metaphors that might not be familiar if you kind of decode it it is really quite a modern um you know kind of account of of human psychology that has has much in common i think with with some buddhist teachings as well about control of the mind and stillness and um you know being free of the of the passions and that sort of thing 
So before we get more into the Desert Fathers and some of the more specifics yeah. about Western um, monasticism, I want to talk a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit of, more about the monastery because I, yeah, sure. a lot of people so, God, we got off the track, didn't we? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but and the reason I want to talk about it is because I know that there are a lot of people that I've recommended it to who listen to the show and things like uh-huh. that. So who are who are interested in hearing it? Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, one of the things that I that I noticed about you wh- while I was watching the documentary mm-hmm. is that. You fit in very well to to the life there, and you and you were able to, yeah. you know, just just kind of go go into it and yeah. sit in the silence and that, you know, in a very yeah. more comfortable way than I think. Um, I, I'm and not the others, Gary, or I, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure, sure their names, sure. but yeah, the, yeah. So I mean, yeah, basically, I've done it before. Uh, even even though the the kind of you know the the premise of the of the program was that these were five five guys who had no kind of experience of of this kind of thing in actual fact i did have experience of it and um and you know i just kind of slotted in straight away um whereas for some of the other guys it, there was more of a kind of reaction against the discipline and the you know the things you might expect someone who's not used to that kind of thing to to you know react in that way but yeah, what I, 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 what I find most interesting is um, just watching the, the the monastery. The things mm-hmm. that the, the trappings of personality that people want to cling to, like the hairstyles or the glasses, yeah, yeah. the clothes they're wearing, or their cell phones, yeah. or whatever it is about them. Yeah, um, it's really hard for them to let those go. It is. I mean, it's hard for us to let go of the things with which we identify, whatever they might be. And, you know, I mean, this is classic sort of Buddhist teaching, but it's also there in the, in the Christian teachings too. You know, we identify with all these things, whether it's our ideas or our, our, you know, image or our work or our achievements, you know, and it is hard to let them go. And it's only when you, when you subject yourself to that kind of discipline and privation that you start to notice all these attachments and identifications that you have. Whereas I, when when I saw you in the in the in the episodes, mm-hmm. you had a, you, longer hair and you were yeah. wrapped. You were very you were wrapped in a very sort of nondescript so blanket, beige yeah, yeah. blankety thing. And yeah. I thought this this guy knows what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean that was, that was my exact hair, thought. But... I was like, this is the person that I want to talk to. You know, <laughs> um, be, and it was interesting because. You know what was it like living in 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 that community with those five people because they were very different. Um, yeah, from it, what we I had noticed, our moments. <laughs> we had our moments. I mean, on the whole, we got on we got on quite well. But there there were there were you know kind of tensions, not not surprisingly. But in a way, um, what what I found interesting about that was it it only reflected the tensions that you that you would have in any community. You know, when you put people who haven't necessarily chosen each other, and this will be true of a monastic community, you know, you don't choose the people that you're going to live with, um, but you you decide to embark upon that common life together. But that's bound, you know, it's inevitable there's going to be tensions because, you know, people are different and people come with different agendas and different expectations. And uh, in our case, there was there was some clash there. Are you the only one who went on to pursue a, a career or a long-term commitment to a religious life? Or yeah, other, yeah, you're the only one. <clears throat> yeah, but I mean, I was I was sort of predisposed anyway. I mean, I'd, I'd kind of been exploring those options before. Um, I mean, of the others, you know, certainly they, they it did. I, I would say, out of the five, three of us were significantly changed in some way as a result of the experience and significantly changed in, in spiritual terms. Now, obviously I'm the only one who's gone and got ordained and is now part of a kind of mainstream um, church, but the others, the others who, who I would say were, you know, had a sort of positive um, outcome were also changed in their own way. Right. I mean, uh, looking at some of the other, um, th- th- there was, th- there was one gentleman, the, the, the older guy, um, who, yeah. who, who you worked with, Peter. who I also thought, yeah, Peter, who, who I also thought was very interesting because he approached it from a very, you know, kind of open minded, but also rational perspective, you know? Yeah, like, he was. And he was very skeptical. Um, I mean, I would say that actually he, he, it had the least impact or, or he was one of those on whom it had less impact, really. And he didn't, you know, he left pretty much the same as he arrived. And um, and he didn't really kind of get get so involved in the process. 
Well, here's an interesting, I mean, I think it's hard for rational people sometimes to get over the inconsistencies in the text and just to go with the practice. I mean, yeah, it's, so it is, it is. If, if you, if you think that it's all about, um, you know, the, the, the statements and the, and the propositions and the, you know, quote unquote beliefs, then yes, it, it is hard to get over that and, and just, um, you know, go with the practice. But, you know, I would say you have to get into the practice first and then the rest of it, you know, may start making sense. But if you start from that kind of cognitive, very, you know, if I may say so, kind of Western approach, that it's all about whether or not you can uh, subscribe to a certain set of propositions, then, yeah, the practice isn't going to make any sense. And if you reject those propositions, then you're not going to be able to get in, into it at all. But, you know, so I say, so you need to so, do it first and then and then figure out what it means. So having been in a couple different monastic situations, mm-hmm. is the... So, and this is sort of the rational mind trying to come to grips with the spiritual mind. Mm. Is the the set of beliefs that the practitioner is supposed to subscribe to, are they less relevant than the practice that they're supposed to be doing on a daily basis? I mean, it seems like the beliefs can be swapped in and out, but the monastic I, I practice... Would, I would say practice comes first. Right. You know, I mean, people, you know, going back to talking about Buddhism, you know, people sometimes say, well, Buddhism isn't a religion, it's a way of life. Mm-hmm. And, I, and to that, I would say, well, what, you know, how is Christianity not a way of life? You know, what's the difference here? Um, you know, it's all about a way of life and the way of life comes first. And the kind of, you know, the, the, the beliefs and, and rationalizations and explanations, they're almost a way of kind of telling that story. But, but, but the fundamental thing is, is the way of life, is the practice, is the doing of it. It's about, it's something you do. It's not just something you think about. You know, faith is right. something you do. And Christianity sort of has become reduced to something that you only practice for an hour a day on Sunday, yes, on I mean, the weekend. For, in, in many perceptions. Retail, retail Christianity. Yeah. I mean, people, people would see it that way. Um, and, and indeed, maybe even some, some people who call themselves Christian would see it that way. Um, and, you know, I, I know there are people in, in my own church who I will only see kind of once a week on a Sunday. But, um, you know, really, if, if your, if your faith is not, is not your way of life, you know, if it's just something you do, you know, for an hour a week, well, frankly, what's, what's the good of that? You know, it's got to be a way of life. It should inform your entire, you know, worldview and your behavior towards others. And that's the, you know, that's the important thing. It's about, the, the, you know, how you, how you relate to other people, how you relate to the universe. So how did you decide to to move into becoming um, ordained? How did you de- how did you de- decide? Okay, this is the church for me. This is the practice. This is the religion. Yeah, it was it was a long process. Um, when I when I came back from those travels, having made that kind of decision to follow this this sense of calling, as it were, as as I mentioned um, briefly earlier, it took a little while to figure out you know, where to go and what to do. And I started off by, by kind of going, going to university and studying, you know, doing, doing a a program in religious studies. And I thought, you know, maybe I'd have an academic career or something like that. Um, But at the same time, there was this nagging sense that it needed to be, you know, more than that still. And, um, you know, I, I, I slowly kind of moved towards the idea of, of ordination as a, you know, as a minister but it did take some time, and it, it was mostly a period of, of uh, kind of resisting that idea as you know not being, you know, who I thought I I was. But just you know, over a period of time, I gradually kind of, you know, got used to it and and grew to accept it. And uh, now I've been ordained the last five years, and it seems like the most uh, the most natural thing in the world. Now. Uh, before we, we we get into some of the more uh, specifics of of Christian monasticism, mm-hmm. let me ask: What has been your exp- what has your experience been as an Anglican priest, as, as a priest in the Church of England? Um, you know, as uh, just as a daily practice, as a job, as a as a way of life. Um, what what has your experience been with the Church of England? I say the, the the great irony is that. Um, when you start doing this sort of, you know, full time as a, you know, full time so-called religious professional, mm-hmm. um, 
it's very easy for your own spiritual life to go out the window. And that's the great irony of it, which is something I'm still trying to, uh, to come to terms with. But I spend so much of my time, um, you know, engaged in other people's spirituality. You become an administrator. Right, yes. Almost, almost. I mean, I do, I do have a lot of administration. You know, I've got a, you know, I've got plant to run. I've got, you know, jobs to do. But it's, but even in the kind of, even in, in the kind of pastoral dimension, because I'm, you know, all my time is spent, um, you know, kind of being alongside other people in their spiritual journeys. Um, it's, it's easy to kind of forget my own and, and, you know, I sort of go along. I think, Oh, well, you know, hang on a minute. I haven't, I haven't been doing my meditation lately or, or whatever. So it is, it is difficult actually to pursue your own, uh, kind of personal spiritual, spiritual life as a full-time, you know, kind of spiritual professional, as it were. And that's the great irony of it. Now, on the other side of that, though, I mean, monks are, are spiritual professionals as well, but, yeah. but their lives are structured around that. Their lives are structured around precisely um, having that kind of practice mm-hmm. in order to give them the framework for their spiritual life. Whereas I'm a secular priest in the world, parish priest, um, in, in a busy city. And a lot of my time is, is spent, you know, kind of working with the local authority or, um, you know, dealing with issues around homelessness or addiction or, you know, whatever, just very worldly kind of business. Um, outreach. It's right. Out- yes. Outreach. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah community Absolutely. outreach. It's mission. It's outreach. It's all good work, but, um, it doesn't leave much time for stillness and reflection and whatever. So the task, for me is to try and integrate, you know, I mean, none of it's separate, none of it's not spiritual. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's hard sometimes to, to have that um, stillness and that, that quiet and that peace. And so the task is to try and integrate this activity into a kind of spiritual framework. And that takes a bit of work, but you know, I mean, that's the, that's the way to do it. You have to, you know, there's a story in the Bible about Mary and Martha, and this is, you know, uh, Mary is the kind of contemplative at, uh, you know, kneeling at Jesus' feet, just gazing at the Lord. And then Martha is busy in the kitchen doing all the kind of serving work. And she says, you know, why don't you tell my sister to come and help me, you know, doing the dishes and, and serving the food? And, and Jesus says, you know, leave her alone. Um, Mary has chosen the better part. And that's used very often as a kind of, um, a kind of proof text, as it were, for the contemplative tradition that you know the way of mary is the is the kind of superior way and then of course you get a lot of people saying well hang on a minute you know for the reality of the world is that we're all kind of martha and we have to we have to work and we have to do this we have to do that um but i believe the key to understanding that is the fact that mary and martha are sisters they're not you know two separate things it's two sides of the same coin and you have to integrate the you know the life of of activity and business with the life of contemplation and prayer and it's just how you do that how you integrate those things and that surely is the you know the spiritual task for all of us is to integrate those two um important callings so i wanted to i wanted to jump back on this one a little bit because um when when people think of of doing spiritual work Mm. i think the this the kind of inner city outreach to people who have less is mm. considered more of a worthy and spiritual goal, like a Mother Teresa sort of saint show, mm. sort yeah. of giving of yourself unto others. Whereas the monastic lifestyle can seem almost self-indulgent yep. to many yep. people. Um, and if you tell people who are you know involved in the rat race every day of their life that they need to step back and get some more time for contemplation and put this mm-hmm. monastic element into their lives... They start mm-hmm. to say things like, I don't have time for that. Yeah, sure. And I don't understand what that will give me. It seems like I'm yeah. just doing nothing. Yeah. Can you can you kind of tell me a little bit about the value that you see yeah. in the monastic lifestyle? I mean there's, you know, there's when, a, as when I you know, when when I think of people viewing it through the lens of those guys are just sitting on the hill doing nothing sure, all day. Sure. They're not contributing to society. Sure. Uh, I mean there's a there's a number of there's a number of things there. I mean, first of all, you know, um, it's a case of it's a case of priorities. I mean, you know, 
I'm busy and here I am complaining I don't have enough enough time for my own kind of spirituality. You know, we make the time for the things we want to do. That's the first thing. Second thing is, well, what's what's the value to someone who is busy to, you know, taking a step back? Um, the, the answer is those who, who try that, who do it, will soon find that actually by taking a step back, um, they are going to be even more able to deal with, you know, all the busyness of life because sometimes we do need to take a step back. We need to um, have some time to put things into perspective and indeed uh, spending a little time, as it were, doing nothing will almost certainly make us more uh, effective in those times when we, you know, have to attend to all the things we have to attend to. So just on a purely pragmatic level, um, and, and many people already know this, on a purely pragmatic level, some form of meditation or, or you know, spiritual practice that on the face of it looks like doing nothing is hugely beneficial even in, or in fact especially in, the kind of, you know, busy um, modern lifestyle that, that everyone has. And so what about people who um, spend their lives in monasteries? I mean, they, they seem to be removing themselves from society. Yeah. Would you say that that's an accurate representation? I mean, they seem fairly removed from society. What's what's the what's well, the they, give and they, take there? What's the they, contribution? They do, and, they do and they don't. I mean, I mean, first of all, you know, there is no escaping uh, from the world because <laughs> because there is no escaping. That's a good. That's a good perspective. There is no yeah. escaping. Yeah. There is no escape um, because you are always there. You know, and that's and that's the work that needs to be done. It's it's on your on yourself and your relations with others, and that that goes with you into the monastery. Um, and in fact, the monastery becomes a hothouse and, an, a, you know, a really kind of uh, intense workshop of, of personal dynamics and, and all that sort of thing. So, you know, in one sense, there is no escape. Um, and, and the other thing is, well, what, what value, you know, what, what do these guys contribute to, to the sum of human flourishing? This really depends on, you know, wh- whether you think, uh, a life of prayer or a life of spirituality has any meaning at all. If you don't, then you're not going to be able to see any any kind of value in this. If you do have a belief that that prayer is of value, that um, you know it's good that there are people doing this thing because we're all part of one kind of organism, if you like, um, and that you know these guys are engaged in in something that is of benefit to others whether it's others who will visit there and get some benefit from that direct encounter, whether it's on a more spiritual plane where, whereby prayer has some, um, you know, benefit for the, the aggregate of human flourishing or whatever. Um, you know, there are ways of seeing that. But if, if you cannot see any value in spiritual practice at all, then, yeah, sure, you're going you're gonna to wonder what's the point of it. And that's, I mean, but that's, you. I think you argue that there's a whole in in most people's lives in modern life that that they people try to fill with things they try to fill with stuff yeah. they try to yeah, fill with actually, money they try to fill yeah. with like let's expand upon sexual that. encounters i think yeah. that that's, that's very important i think that's a very important point that you make um so could you discuss that a little more sorry what discuss what uh the 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 point that james had made uh, about uh about people uh, filling yeah that you know that you had pointed out in your book stuff. yeah yeah i mean we 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 desire something, right? We have a longing, we have a yearning for something. Now, whether this is for completion, whether this is for fulfillment, whether this is for freedom, you know, whatever word we want to use, there is this impulse that, you know, somehow things are not quite the way they should be. Somehow things are not perfect as they are. Somehow we are not fully satisfied with ourselves and with our circumstances. And we tend to... Um, try and fulfill this this desire in all sorts of you know different ways, but largely through um, you know acquisition of of material goods or the you know fulfillment of bodily desires or whatever. Um, but but I would argue that 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 yearning has a more fundamental basis, and it is it is a spiritual yearning, and even the kind of um, you know hedonistic pleasure seeking desires are underneath um you know a kind of as it were misdirected spiritual desire for that completion that ultimate fulfillment that um you know ultimate satisfaction which from a from a spiritual point of view you would have to say can only be fulfilled by a 
um, you know, by by a spiritual goal or a spiritual, um, you know, fulfillment, um, which in theistic terms would be God. And so you have that, you know, that famous um, kind of line from Augustine that our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. Only that which is truly um, eternal and truly infinite can fulfill that ever, you know, longing and infinite desire that we seem to have. Now, I think that's that's very interesting, and, and I here's here's a question that popped up in mm-hmm. my mind as you were talking about that. Is it possible to, if I could steal the words of um, of another uh, host on Sepia Radio, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> is it possible to surf between the hells, so to speak? Is it possible to um, have that kind of you know you know have a sort of um, you know. Uh, contemplative, reflective lifestyle, to have faith, Mm -hmm. to have that spiritual setting, but at Mm -hmm. the same time have the self-discipline to say, well, look, this is an indulgence, but it's simply an indulgence. Are there people who who can surf between those hells and have that kind of self-discipline, or do you think you have to go either one way or the other? No, I, 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 th- I think you can. I mean, you know, we're still living in the world. So monks are still living in the world. People who, who follow a spiritual path are still living in the world. Um, I think, I think the difference is what you, what you identify with, you know, and it, and it comes down to that sense of where you place your, your value. Um, I mean, there's a, there's quite a nice passage in the, in the gospels about how, you know, if you, if you put your, your uh, treasure, if you put what you value in earthly things, then, you know, the, the moth will consume them, they'll rust away. You should instead um, put your treasure in heaven where neither rust nor, mu- rust nor moth consume. It's this sense of what, what do you identify with, what really matters. If you're, if you're centered in a kind of spiritual identity, if what really matters is something that is eternal, that is God, that is, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it, then, you know, the, the things of, of the world, as it were, the, you know, the things that rust, the things that, that, that consume away, the transient pleasures are not going to um, ensnare you, as it were. You're not going to identify with them. And so it's okay to, you know, enjoy ice cream, you know, um, or whatever it might be. But it's, it's whether you get, you know, kind of obsessed with ice cream, or whatever it might be, and that's the difference. It's about what you identify with and where you where you kind of invest your your sense of value and what re- what really matters. Right. I mean, if you're investing your sense of value all day into ice cream or drugs or whatever it is, yeah, you know, it, is, yeah. it, it could become an obsession or a problem. Exactly. Exactly. And it will be you know detrimental to to your your own flourishing and and that of your relationships and ultimately the you know the world we all share. Right, it's you know, uh, if a butterfly flaps its wings in one area, yeah, you know, sure. that that yeah. that kind of concept. So yeah. let's talk about a little um, a little bit about the actual um, tradition in the ancient uh, tradition. Um, you know, that, that comes out of the Desert Fathers. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the rule of Benedict and so on. So mm-hmm. first, I want to start out by um, by talking a little bit more about the Desert Fathers, which I know James brought up. Mm. Um, and in your book, you talk about the Historium uh, Monacorum, which which mm-hmm. records staggering numbers of monks. I mean, un, you know, mm. unbelievable amounts of yeah, monks. Yeah, it is. It is just, I, I mean, crazy bad. millions. I mean, almost a city of monks is basically yeah. what 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 that describes under the care of. I think it was Saint Anthony, um, yeah, wh- who moved onto a mountain and yeah. So. Uh, and and there were also a, a few other names you mentioned: uh, uh, yeah. Mar- Marcarius of Alexandria, uh, Marcarius yeah. of uh, the Great, and also a ge- uh, two, two other gentlemen who I thought were particularly interesting: Evagrius, Evagrius, yeah, who I really thought, who I really liked, and yeah. um, also yeah. or uh, or or again, or uh, origin, uh, yeah, origin, origin. Yeah. origin. Yeah. So, could you kind of discuss? Um, First, a little bit about Saint Anthony and um, and those Desert Fathers, and then a little bit about Evagrius and Origen. Sure, um, a- Anthony was is is kind of credited with being you know the first monk. I mean, whether that's literally true or not, pro- possibly not. But but you know the the sort of legend has it that he was the first monk, and he he was just a you know regular guy. Um, but one day he he was walking past a church and he heard. Uh, the the reading in the Bible about how um, the the rich young man comes to Jesus and says, "What do I need to do to to have eternal life?" And Jesus says, 
sell all you have, give to the poor, and then, you know, and then follow me. And the, the rich young man in the story isn't able to do this because he's attached to his possessions and his, and his lifestyle and all the rest of it. But Anthony hears this and, and it kind of hits him like a bolt from the blue and he decides to, to, you know, renounce the world and withdraw to the wilderness. And he does so and he goes, you know, I mean, there's a various sort of stages in the, in the story, but he, he eventually ends up living in a cave on the, on the side of a, a mountain in the desert, which is, you can visit, I've, I've visited it to this day. There's a monastery built at the, at the bottom of the mountain Isn't, and then it's his a Coptic cave monastery is, is halfway up there. Uh, it's a Coptic monastery, if I remember. Coptic monastery, that's right. And yeah. there's a particular gentleman there who I who I who I had seen videos about, who I thought was interesting. Father Lazarus. Yes, who who lives as a, as a hermit in the yeah. in the hills. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, really, really interesting guy. Looking at his yeah. quarters where he lives. Um, yeah. And his also his personal story of being an Australian uh, right, professor yeah. and then you know moving, uh, you know, really, really interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. Did you get to meet him while you were there? I didn't. I haven't met him. I have visited Saint Anthony's Monastery, and I and I met a couple of the monks there, um, and I visited the cave. But I was only there for a very short short time, um, and wasn't able to to kind of spend enough time. And and Father Lazarus was you know up a mountain somewhere, so uh, I didn't didn't get to meet him. But he's still there, as far as I know. Yeah, he seems like an interesting person to go and yeah, visit definitely. and speak with. Um, and yeah, I, we'd like to get him, I think. Yeah, but yeah, you, you have to you actually have to go luck. to him. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Listen, well, listen, the three of us can get can, can get a trip together, you know, and we'll all yeah. go out and we'll interview Father Lazarus. How about that? <laughs> I think that will be a fun uh, excursion. That would be cool. Yeah, no, no, yeah, I, I, I really think it would, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> No, I know. I mean, and I'm totally serious. I mean, I would go to Egypt and interview this guy. Absolutely. Um, no, no, no. Those, those Coptic monasteries are pretty, pretty interesting, actually. Yeah, I mean, it would be a, it would be a wonderful uh, experience. Yeah. But yeah, and the interviews I have watched of him, he, he he's he's very much um, at peace. Uh, it mm, seems like. seems to me, yeah. You know, uh, and um, it, it, there's there's something about that desert tradition. That uh, seems to seems to just um, carry this this energy with it or this force mm. with it that you know these when these uh, when these monks get into it. Um, yeah. So, talk um, now. How about Evagrius? Evagrius. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk a little bit about him because he he was he was more of a Gnostic um, almost from some of the readings that I've. Uh, um, I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a slightly kind of loaded term, but he was certainly. Um, he was certainly a thinker. He was he was the one who really kind of wrote down in a in a systematic way the kind of experiences and teachings of of the tradition. Mm -hmm. And what I think is really interesting is that he he talks a lot about uh, about demons, but the word he uses for demons is a word that is also used for thoughts, and and these two terms are used quite interchangeably. And he classifies these um, thoughts, obsessive thoughts specifically, into into eight different categories, and he describes in great detail the you know the kind of characteristic obsessions that we have, you know, that we had then, that we still have now. Um, whether what, it's what would we call anger, neuroses? Sorry, oh, I'm going to say, would these be like neuroses or are these? No, I, I think I think they're just they're just our kind of thought thought tendencies i mean nothing as sort of um complicated really as neuroses just just the kind of thoughts that we have um and the emotions that we have that tends to um take us over um and that's why the kind of language of of demons is kind of appropriate because you know think about when someone's angry they are literally possessed by that emotion and you don't say um you know, I feel a bit of anger now. You say, I am angry. You know, it's that total identification with, with a thought or a feeling. And he classifies these, these kind of obsessive thoughts, uh, and describes their, their characteristics, how they kind of uh, relate to each other, um, which ones are likely to come first, which ones will, will come after, and how we will be affected by them what kind of detrimental effects they will have and also how we can kind of counteract them and how we can try and um, 
pursue practices that will make for a you know mental equilibrium and and uh, ways of not getting caught up in these thoughts. And if if anyone spends any time in meditation, uh, they will soon find that their mind is full of all sorts of thoughts that try and you know kind of pull them away. Um, and that's exactly the the kind of stuff that the that Evagris is is describing in his in his texts about the mind and the thoughts and, uh, so and you, basic human behavior. You, you know, what was what was the date of these writings of Evagris? Uh, Evagris was was in the fourth uh, century, if I remember rightly. So it predates Buddhist philosophy. It predates no, no, Buddhist post dates Buddhist philosophy. Oh, post dates Buddhist philosophy. Yeah, okay. because Buddhism, Buddhism is is kind of five. Well, the Buddha was was kind of five hundred years BC. So oh, okay. this all of this postdates Buddhism, and there's a really really interesting question as to whether, um, or or to what extent Buddhist thought had any influence in the ancient Western world. I mean, there was certainly contact between India and you know the Greco-Roman civilizations. Well, you know, between Constantinople and uh, yeah, yeah, you know, the Silk uh, Road. Definitely, there was definitely traffic. You know, and where where there's commerce, there's communication. Mm-hmm. And there was definitely trade uh, between the kind of Roman and, and ancient Greek world and India. Uh, Alexandria was a very important uh, trading city. There would have been people from all over the world there. And certainly when um, Alexander went on his conquests across Persia and into northern India, he met with with Buddhists and he had people with him who were almost certainly influenced by the you know the kind of ideas and the people they met. So there is definitely a, a kind of strand of ancient Indian um, and Buddhist influence in the kind of, you know, Greek philo- philosophical tradition. And, you know, these these desert fathers that we're talking about were also, you know, from that Hellenistic world. And the, the philosophers and theologians that they would have been familiar with may have also, uh, you know, had some familiarity with, you know, thoughts that have come through. I mean, it's all speculation. There's very little you can prove. But, right. But I think the interesting thing is that there's, there surely would have been more contact between East and West in the ancient world than we might at first think. You know, we think, oh, well, no one went any, anywhere. They didn't have aeroplanes. You know, they couldn't have gone anywhere. But they did. Well, I mean, you even know, into the Middle Ages. Um, I mean, even into the Middle Ages, um, you know, the Byzantine Empire held strong until, you know, the 1300s when they began to get weak. And, you know, and Constantinople was the major trade city between the the Eastern world and the West. And, uh, you know, that's where, uh, you know, so it's 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 it's. It's not provable, but it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to prove. I mean, there are, there are some very, very scant records. Can we, can um, we go back to this notion of thoughts as demons? And yeah, how, sure. how, how literal were, I mean, are, yeah. were, are we, are we talking that's, about the personification of, of demonic really, spirits really or is this question. a play on words? I mean, yeah, what, really what's going question. on here? You know, did they believe that demons had some kind of ontological existence or right. were they using this as a, as a metaphor for, you know, the behavior of the human mind? Now, as a, as a modern person reading it, it's very easy to to think well this is this is simply you know a metaphor um uh, because it 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 reads very persuasively you know as a as an account of of human behavior and we have no problem uh with the idea of you know demons as 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 a metaphor you know the demon drink or whatever it might be or or possessed by anger you know this is a common way of of thinking about strong strong emotions or or attachments did did they think that demons were were real, or you know did they have that same kind of metaphorical understanding, or was it somewhere between the two? I mean, it's hard to it's hard to know. You know, they do write quite um, literally about about demons and about spirits, but um, whether they whether they thought that you know these things had had a kind of external reality or not is really hard to know. So there's this really interesting thing that I uh, that I love about Christian Christian mythos and the Christian religion mm. is that there's there's modern emphasis is very much placed on the Holy Trinity. You've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, mm-hmm. and everything is, seems very clean. Mm. But but 
but traditional historic Christianity was filled with these these impish personifications of mm-hmm. demons. I mean, all illnesses were bl- were blamed on spirits or curses mm-hmm. or demons mm-hmm. or or something. Very superstitious culture, almost pagan mm-hmm. in a way, mm-hmm. but still clinging to this this. Can you talk a little bit about how how this this idea of of spirits and possession in Christianity and how that how that relates to you have we, this in all traditions. You always have a a kind of, you know, scholarly, academic, theological level of what's in the books, you know, the book religion. And then you have the popular everyday beliefs that, you know, that people have and the everyday practices that they pursue, <laughs> which will be a mixture of all kinds of stuff. And, and you know, going back to the example of, of Buddhism, you see it very, very clearly there. Because, you know, the Buddhism that you read about in books is all about the Four Noble Truths and dependent origination and all this kind of very pristine, rational uh, philosophy where everything adds up very neatly. And indeed, it does add up very neatly. It's a very, you know, it's a very good system. But the the reality of, of Buddhist practice for Buddhist people living in Buddhist countries will include all kinds of other stuff, including spirits and demons and gods and and deities and you know all kinds of stuff that's uh, that's not in you know most of the books written by western scholars and that's true of all traditions you know it's true of christianity it's true of islam it's true of buddhism you know it's there's always that kind of two tier um you know kind of aspect to it but in the catholic church there's this weird thing where the higher tiers like the priest class will actually perform an exorcism to, yes. to remove a spirit where yep. the, the two that the folk spirituality and the and the top down hierarchical spirituality they sort of intersect in these sort of little rituals where oh, yes. they cast out spirits the intersections and you know buddhist monks will also perform exorcisms and oh they and, will oh yeah and and they oh, will great. they will engage in folk religion and they will perform you know household rituals for people and another really interesting thing is that in um in a, in a lot of kind of countries around the Middle East and, and Egypt and so on, where they have, um, you know, long-standing Christian populations, although they're smaller than they used to be, but I mean, take Egypt, Egypt as an example. You've got the Coptic Christians who, of course, were there before the Muslims and who are, as it were, the old religion. Um, when, when, when a, a Muslim family needs, you know, have got some sort of case of, you know, whatever we might think it is, but, you know, that they think is spiritual possession or, or something, um, going on that, that, that they can't deal with. They will call a Christian priest because, you know, the Christians are the old religion. They deal with all that kind of stuff, you know, all that kind of old superstition and the elemental spirits and all that. So they will call for a Christian priest to come and do the exorcism. Even because though they, they, they've dealt with that or they have rituals to yeah, deal because, with that. Because, yeah, because, yeah, and because they're the old religion, you know, and Islam is the new, pure, kind of rational, um, you know, modern religion, as it were. Uh, but when when it gets to sort of spirits and and you know all that kind of elemental stuff, they'll call in the Christian priest, which is kind of interesting. It is. It is. Yeah. You know, I, and actually, uh, since since we're on that topic, um, I don't know. Are you familiar with the Santo Daime Church in South America? Yeah, I I, I know of it. I mean, I I wouldn't say I knew much about it, but yeah, mm-hmm. I've I've heard about it. I've heard of it. Just uh, because you know, in, in, in that's that's also a blending of Catholicism and folk religion, sure. you know, and, and the folk religion, yeah. Which uh, you know, uh, d- I mean, depending on where you are in South America, it could be uh, you know any variety of indigenous tradition. So mm. since since we've 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 discussed um, you know uh, influences between you know the, the mainstream Abrahamic religions, what about these kind of um, the what about the blending of the indigenous religions and Christianity uh, and things like that? What are your thoughts on that in places um, you know like Southeast Asia or South America, Africa, yeah. so on? I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't really say much about that. I don't know. I don't know a good deal about it. I mean, I have visited. Um, uh, I mean, you mentioned Africa. I have visited uh, South Africa, where they where they have various kind of um, indigenous African churches. Um, and there's a Zulu church in particular that was founded by um, uh, uh, an African man in the 19th century, and, and they have many followers today. And they consider themselves Christian, 
even though you know it it would be hard for a someone from a kind of mainstream western christian church to see quite what was christian about you know kind of what they did and what they believed um so you do get these these all these different you know kind of flowerings of of um different movements and different traditions which may or may not align with a you know a kind of mainstream world religion or or not but it's it's sometimes hard to it's kind of sometimes hard to kind of you know fit them in the box but does that matter i don't know so we're coming towards the end of the program so and since okay. our program is called dose nation i have to mm-hmm. ask this question of course <laughs> i have to what are, what are your thoughts on psychedelics and entheogens and spiritual practice um i've done a little bit of experimentation in that area although it was a long time ago but i've i've taken lsd um and i've i've had an interest uh in my in my youth in in kind of exploring those um you know altered states that we can induce through you know ingestion of certain substances whether i mean this is a really difficult one you know is is that a real spiritual experience or is it something that looks like a spiritual experience? Does it matter how you interpret it? You know, is it a spiritual experience if that's how you see it and not if that's not how you see it? You know, because for a lot of people, this, these, um, these kind of things is purely recreational, whereas right. others yeah. will, will take it, you know, in a different way and explore, you know, a different understanding of it. Um, so it's difficult. You know, I, I don't, I don't know if I have a strong, view one way or the other really but i have have kind of dabbled so i do know what you're talking about can i can i ask you a, a, yeah. a maybe a less loaded question okay. <laughs> sorry i have I, a little bit of experience with lsd yeah. is have you ever found anything in your meditative or monastic studies that crosses over with anything that you felt on lsd as an as an you know an opening mm-hmm. or a consciousness expanding experience or are they two separate domains um I think, yeah, I wouldn't like to say whether or not they're separate, but I do think they're quite distinct. I do think they have quite different characteristics. And, um, I mean, certainly, you know, back in the day, I was looking for ways of understanding what I had experienced, uh, through LSD in, in, you know, kind of spiritual terms. So I was reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I was reading Tim Leary. I was reading all those kind of things, um, and trying to, trying to sort of, because, because that was, that was kind of what I thought I was experiencing. You know, it wasn't just recreational. I was getting insights into, you know, kind of things. And, and I thought it was really interesting. So I wanted to, to explore what other people had said about it. I haven't really, um, in terms of, of, uh, meditation or, or involvement with kind of mainstream religious practices and, and all that, mm-hmm. uh, I couldn't really say I'd, I'd had any experiences that were comparable. And so that's why I think they're distinct. That doesn't mean they're separate, but I do think there's this, yeah, it's hard to put your finger on it. I mean, I, I don't know. Can I, can I, did, did, uh, did your experience with LSD as a younger man nudge you towards the spiritual path? Like uh, amp your curiosity? Yeah, possibly. I mean, I had, I had an interest, uh, I had an interest in Buddhism as a teenager I had an interest in, you know, the kind of big questions, if you like, and mm-hmm. um, what different traditions had, had, you know, come up with and what different philosophers had come up with. And so, I mean, I would say that, that I had that pre-interest and that may have made me uh, kind of explore, um, you know, drug culture with that predisposition in the first place. You had place. a framework. You had a framework. I had right. a framework, framework. I had a, a, framework and I had a motive. And so... When I got into LSD, I was, I was looking for, you know, a spiritual understanding of it. But I had friends who were taken. It would just be, you know, it would just be a lot of giggling, you know. So I think it, I think it depends. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, I don't mind saying that, that my LSD experiences did, um, you know, open up new understandings and new horizons and new ways of seeing the world that, that, you know, I hadn't had before. And I wouldn't want to, you know, I wouldn't want to change that. Well, as uh, Huxley said, it's the you know the the doors of perception. Yeah, you know. Um, and actually, there was there was a there was another person. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, brother uh, David Stendel Rast. Um, yeah, yeah, he 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 had he had spoken about that um, mm-hmm. about entheogens, and he's a Benedictine monk. 
Right. Um, and he had said that, uh, you know, uh, I think he's from Austria, and he said, you know, look, mm-hmm. he, he, in, in his opinion, he thinks it is a um, bonification of you know, whatever they're doing, you know, but again, it's, mm-hmm. it's a hard question because you're messing with brain chemistry is what you're doing. Yeah. It's just yeah. a tool, really. I mean, yeah, the, you know, the drug again, it's just a tool right. to, 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 to an end. And if it's a spiritual end, then you can find something spiritual in it. Yeah. And you right. Can, in, this, find in the same way that a ritual is, is a spiritual end, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, so. it, but it's not necessarily a spiritual tool in and of itself. No, no, you yeah. have to, you have to have that framework. Yeah. You have to bring that framework to it. So, um, Father Nicholas, why don't you tell us where we can find uh, your website, uh, all of all of your books, um, you know, and things like that. Um, well, I, ha- I have my own website, which is uh, nicholasbuxton.net. I think that's what it is, anyway. Um, but any <laughs> any Google search of Nicholas Buxton will will bring it up. Um, my books available through through Amazon, and and there may be other retailers that that uh, carry it as well. Um, yeah, we'll have a link to the book up on the uh, website. Absolutely, great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Tantalus and the Pelican, Exploring Monastic Spirituality Today. Um, Father Nicholas, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really thank interesting. You. My uh, pleasure. Stay with us until after I end the recording. Okay. Um, but uh, all right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you've been listening to Dose Nation. I'm your host, Jake, and of course, uh, with me as always, James Kent, founder of Dose Nation. Uh, so without him, thank you. none of this would be possible. If you didn't found it, James, we wouldn't be doing it. So Great. Thanks, Jake. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody, and we will see you all next Saturday, uh, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. A special thanks to Sepia Radio for syndicating this episode and all other episodes. So make sure you go to sepianc.com forward slash radio.html, and that's where you can listen to us through Sepia every Saturday live. So thanks for joining us, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Have a fantastic evening.